0: Thank you, Sarah. Now, a number of people have asked me uh, for an update on Michael Aitken. So I'll just read you an email uh, that's come in to me just today. Uh, For those who are not familiar, Michael worked on staff here for about eight, nine years, um, predominantly with the Knight Congregation. A lot of you will know him uh, and his wife, Lisa, and two kids, Millie and Charlotte. He's now the senior minister at Bellrose and he had a serious bike accident on Thursday lunchtime. Uh, They're not quite sure how he came off, he wasn't hit by a car, but I'll just give you an update on his condition for your prayers. Uh, Michael has moved out of ICU to neurosurgery, uh, which is a great sign the doctors are happy with his progress. However, he is an amazing amount of pain and no insight, and he's got no insight into his brain injury. Um, And so um, please pray for that big prayer point now, in addition to no permanent brain damage is that he doesn't develop pneumonia. The neurosurgeon has said that it would, could be uh, fatal with his lung and ribs in the condition they're in. He's got about eight or nine broken bones in his chest. So, uh, and Millie has law exams and Charlotte has HSC assessments. So I'm going to pray for him as we start and then we'll look at Daniel 6. Father, we do pray for our brother Michael. Uh, he's a good man who loves you and trusts you. And as he is uh, in the lion's den of injury, we pray that you would be not just his comfort and strength, but also his healing. And pray that you would heal his brain and his ribs and his lungs. And we pray bring him through this. Uh, We ask your mercy to be upon him. We pray for Lisa and Millie and Charlotte, that you'll be their strength in the darkness. And particularly for Millie and Charlotte with exams, uh, that you would give them... Uh, the ability to um, both uh, be a good support for their mum and their dad as well as be able to focus and study and learn. And so we just ask be with them in this time. And Lord, we pray for us as we look at your word that you would be with us now and speak to our hearts about how we can live faithfully for you in this city. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we come to Daniel 6 this morning and I'm Kind of beating the same drum. How do we live faithfully in a secular city? How do you have a living faith in a secular city? And the story we're looking at, Daniel chapter six, it really is one of the greatest stories in all of the Bible. Um, I understand it's in just about every children's Bible picture storybook that you will get. They'll have the story of Daniel and the lions den, and it's a great story. You've got the daring Daniel who takes his stand. He's a faithful servant of God who is persecuted. By the godless leaders of the day in this foreign country called Babylon. And daring Daniel refuses to cower in the threat of an impending gruesome death at the mouths of hungry, ravenous lions. A sympathetic king to his cause, though, is snookered by the laws of the day and the political rules, and he is unable to intervene and stop the death of his beloved servant. The faithful servant Daniel trusts in God, seeking in prayer. And the mouths of the lions are stopped as an angel comes and rescues him. And he is avenged as his persecutors and their families are thrown into the lions and they are consumed in an instant. It's funny how that part of the story never appears in the kids' story Bibles. And it finishes with the pagan king Darius acknowledging that the God of Daniel rules. And he issues an edict across the land, fear and reverence him. It's a great story. Uh, There's drama, there's action, there's lines. We always like to see lines in a story. Uh, The bad guys are beaten, the underdog hero is rewarded, a king is converted, God is praised. What more could you want from an Old Testament story? Well, what does it mean for us today, I guess, is why we're here. And how can God speak into our lives from this story from so many years ago That's the question I want to look at. Now, I normally have, on average, three points a sermon. you kind of got the feel for that. Now I know. I've got six today. You're looking a bit nervous, aren't you? Uh, Four of them are just very... These things are so annoying, you know. This did this at 8 o'clock. After 8 o'clock, I went up to it and it worked. Anyway, I'll have words with it later. Um, I've got four... Quick things I want to say because as you read through this story, there's so many different things that will come out of it that speak to our lives. And then I've got two major things that I want to look at at the end. And the first uh, of the just observations are you're never too old to be used by God. One of the interesting things, if you've got your Bibles there, open up, uh, page 880. Um, we are now at the third king in Daniel's lifetime. That should tell you something. Uh, Daniel is quite old now. In fact, he's over 80. Anyone here 80 or above? We got anyone 80 or above? No, they're all... Ca- oh, there's one up the back. Fantastic. A special message for you up the back. You are not too old to be used by God, okay? And I said that to all the 8 o'clockers this morning. Um, this is quite incredible. They are throwing an 80-year-old man to the lions. Um, obviously, no heart. Incredible jealousy. But it does tell you you're not too old to be used by God. I think in today's society, once you get over 50, people treat you as though you're on the uh, washed up heap and no use to anyone. That is not true with God. Uh, And it's amazing how many people just in this church, over 50, 60, 70, 80, are still being used by God in significant ways to love people and bring the gospel to bear. That's the first thing. Uh, Second is this only God's word stands forever. Uh, When you read through the story, there are two edicts that are mentioned. And as you read through the story, very similar to Esther, you hear this phrase, uh, when it's the laws of the Medes and the Persians, they can't be overturned. And so this first law is an edict issued by the king that people are to worship him. And I think sometimes we see laws that come to bear in our country and in our state, and we think, gee, they are so ungodly And you can think of some of the current controversies about legalisation of various things. But when you get to the end of the story, another edict has been issued which cannot be changed and it's fascinating because this is an edict to fear and reverence God. And I think the story is telling us something very significant. God's word will not be conquered and it will stand forever. And you will have things come and go in our secular society that really are totally against the will and the mind of our God. We are not to be afraid of that or put off by that because it's only the word of God which will stand forever. Third thing, no one's too hard for God to transform. I think one of the most remarkable things is you see in this story Darius who is a pagan king is really converted, if I can use the language of Christendom, by the end of the story. Um, he is now issuing an edict, worship Daniel's God. He's the one you should fear and reverence for he is the living God and he endures forever. And I know as we come here this morning that there'll be people who have come alone because their spouse is not here. Uh, I know there'll be people who you have children who have walked away from the faith. I know there'll be people here, you work with some people who you think they are so hard of heart. And this story should encourage you that no one is beyond the realms and the effects of God's grace. And God can soften even the hardest of hearts. And we must keep praying for our loved ones and those nearest and dearest to us that God, in his mercy, will open their eyes to see the wonder of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be encouraged by this story. No one is too hard. And then lastly... um, you see this incredible model of what gives Daniel strength. Have a look at verse 10, page 880 or 881. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to the upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. And there is no doubt Daniel is an incredible servant of the living God, And what you discover is there is this deep and disciplined devotional life that gives him strength. If you are struggling to be a living witness in your world, one of the things you might want to do is reflect on how are you spending time regularly in the Word and in prayer? And what's mentioned here is he prayed three times a day, as was his practice, and you know, Uh, The decree comes, the threat is issued and does Daniel worry? No, he gets on his knees as he always did because he knows his God and he trusts his God. And in fact, the remarkable thing is he is not the one who prays to God for deliverance. He just gives thanks to his God. It's actually Darius who prays for Daniel to be rescued. Quite remarkable. And his prayer is on view here. His scripture knowledge and trust in the word of God is seen in chapter 9 where he prays. And you see that his prayer is really uh, just so rich and deep in scripture when you come to chapter 9. But there's a number of things just to take note of that will help us as we have to seek to have a living faith in this secular world. Um, we're not too old. It's God's word that will stand forever. No one is too far away from God. Be strengthened in your resolve to live for Christ in this world by having daily time with God in prayer and in the Word. But that's not the main reason this story is written. Uh, There are two big themes that jump out of this and it really is how is it that Daniel understands himself and so is effective in wanting to live for God in Babylon. And I want to tell you he's got a very important perspective on life that we need to have if we are to have a living faith in this city of Sydney. And secondly, he has a belief that gives him strength and enables him to live with the perspective he's got. So let's have the first thing, the perspective. The perspective is this. um, Daniel neither separated nor assimilated, but rather served and witnessed. We are neither to separate nor assimilate. Let's have a look at each one of those. Firstly, separation. When we meet Daniel in this chapter, as we've already been told, he's now 80 odd years old and he's risen to the top of the Babylonian world. And I don't think it's an accident. Um, We find these words. Have a look at chapter 6, verse 3. Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities. Uh, You might say by the way he served with excellence, that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom and so he is now about to rise to the second most important and authoritative position in all of Babylon, this secular world, secular city. Well, at this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel. So the political forces are stirring against him. The backroom deals are happening. And so they know that because of his conduct in government affairs, they're unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and he was neither corrupt nor negligent. In other words, he's completely trustworthy in what he does and he's incredibly competent in the way he works. And that's why he's risen to the top. Now, you need to ask the question, um, why did Daniel work this way in the city? Because, you see, if he was a um, Jewish person uh, or an Israelite, his natural instincts would have been to been reviled by Babylon, and to have been opposed to them. They were the pagan uh, warriors who'd come and conquered Israel. But as we saw in chapter 1, Daniel knew that God had placed him there. And what's more than that, um, he knew that the way he was to have, uh, to the perspective he was to have on his time in that city was to be one of service and witness. Now if you've got your Bibles there, open up to Jeremiah 29. It's just a few books back. You've got Ezekiel beforehand and then Jeremiah before that. And Jeremiah 29 is a fascinating prophecy from Jeremiah to the exiles like Daniel, who are in Babylon. And I'm sure these words greatly affected his vision and gave him perspective on how he was to view his time of living in this secular city. Chapter 29 verse 4, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried from ex- into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, i.e. like Daniel. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters, increase in number there, do not decrease, and also seek The peace and the prosperity of the city to which I'd carried you into exile. Now, it's worth saying this was so counterintuitive for someone like Daniel and the Israelites. What Jeremiah is saying is actually God's not going to rescue you straight away. You've got to settle down there. You've got to join in there. You can't separate from them actually the opposite. You've got to serve in the city. You've got to seek the peace. And the prosperity of those that you consider your enemies. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I've not sent them. And they were saying, look, God is going to rescue you. And Jeremiah is saying, actually, he's not. Uh, Verse 10, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon... I will come to you and fulfil my good promise to bring you back to this place. But for now, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, the plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. We often talk about those words in terms of God has a plan for our life. Uh, They're taken right out of context when we use them that way. Daniel rightly, though, took them to mean that he was to go into Babylon and serve there. Now, what does that mean for us? You see, we must have a vision and a perspective on life, which is this. Uh, we are not called to separate ourselves from the secular city of Sydney. And no doubt that is a great temptation from people. Uh, there are godless forces at work. There are cultures that we think, I don't want my kids to be a part of. Uh, there are all sorts of dangers for people spiritually in Sydney. There is a great deal of idol worship, not in the sense that we have a little uh, statue in our home, but people give themselves to all kinds of things, to pleasure, to accomplishment, to money, to career, to status, and they worship that. We worship family. And what Christians can do at times is separate themselves from this city and from this culture and think, what I want to do is build a little kind of Christian culture that I'm a part of, that we are a part of, and separate from the godless culture of Sydney. And people who do this see the city as evil and they look forward to God judging it. And you probably will meet more extreme versions of this and you'll hear them talking against the city and the godlessness of it often and they'll pray against the godlessness of the city. And what consumes them is not their desire to be godly in the city, but they're consumed by the godlessness that they find in the city. And what happens is, um, you don't have this vision that Daniel had, which was that he was to go in and settle down and seek the peace and the prosperity. And you separate, and we become a Christian enclave. Well, Daniel didn't do this. In fact, what we see is the opposite. He served the city with excellence. And by the end of his life, he has risen to the top. He served it so well that he's now one of the top three officials in Babylon. Let me just make a couple of reflections on that. Daniel is commended for his public service. The Great Commission calls us to send out missionaries into the world to bring the gospel and the message of the Lord Jesus Christ to bear and to be heard in all of the world and we must continue to do that. But our vision of sending must not be limited to sending Bible teachers and evangelists and church planters and youth workers and kids ministers to preach the gospel like we send them in on a raid and we come back. Actually no, all of us are sent into the world. All of us must go into the world as Christians And what's interesting is Jeremiah is the prophet, Daniel is the public servant. And they both had profound ministries. And they both served with their various gifts and calling. Daniel, we see, is serving in the public sector. And our vision for, if I can say, us as Christians must be much bigger than what I sometimes hear uh, in some places. If you can't be a person in full-time ministry, then your role is to work and earn money to support those who are in full-time ministry and evangelise in the workplace. Now let me say, um, if you are working, all of us need to support gospel ministry. We need to support the ministry here, we need to support elsewhere. But our vision must be bigger than that, Um, particularly here in Manly, where we have people in so many places of significance, in the arts, in law, in finance, in politics, in education. We are called to go into this world as Christians and serve there for the benefit of the city. But what we're not called to do is this. Assimilate. You see, the problem is when people go into the world and into the city uh, in workplaces, Uh, The great temptation is to become like the city. And to assimilate is to, in a sense, lose your identity and gain a new one. And that's what we do as people come in here to Australia. We try to assimilate them and help them become Australians. Nothing wrong with that at that level. But what we are not to do as we go into the world as Christians is to lose our identity, which is that we are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, people who assimilate, what happens is they love the city. They want to go into the city and they think, yeah, I'll serve the city. But they actually begin to become a part of the city and love the city. And there's no separation. There's no difference from them or anyone else in their workplace in how they view their life there. Yes, they've got a faith that they exercise here on a Sunday, but there is nothing distinctive about them from Monday through to Saturday. And they've just assimilated. And you see, this is the challenging thing about this chapter, with chapter 6 with Daniel. Uh, Daniel's perspective was not that he would have become assimilated into Babylon culture. uh, Daniel's perspective was that he would go into that city and serve the city and be a witness to the living God in that city. I sometimes hear people talk about, do you have a private faith or a public faith? I think the distinction's unhelpful. We're to have a living faith that actually drives us and gives us our sense of identity in the world. And we go into the world to serve it for its well-being, but to be salt and light within it with a living faith that guides our work. And you see this with Daniel. He was not afraid to continue to be a follower of the living God when challenged. He was not afraid to be publicly identified as one. He would pray at the window as he'd done all his life. And when the threat of death came, there was no fear. It was just a resolve. He would continue to serve his God as he'd done faithfully for years. And you see, that is the perspective we're to have. We are sent into the world. And whether you are a teacher, a lawyer, someone working in the finance realm, you are to go in every day as a living servant of the Lord Jesus Christ with a living face that is to guide you and direct you. And there may be a cost, In fact, how do you tell if you are assimilating or isolating as against being a servant who is a living witness? Well, have a look if there's any pain or trouble in your life for following Jesus. Uh, This is the part I find challenging. You see, uh, Daniel is at the top, but he's prepared to lose it all so that he is faithful to God. And there is great pain and danger. Um, Often Christians will go weak or go silent or compromise because there's a cost involved in being a Christian. And this chapter challenges us that we are not to take our faith and hide it at work. It doesn't mean we go and preach at work But it does mean that our faith and living for God gives us our sense of values and direction and strength and moral compass as we work for God in this city. And I want you to remind you of what Jesus said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. I heard a wonderful example of a Christian worker from New York from Tim Keller at the conference I was at earlier in the year about someone who was shaped by his faith at work and it may have cost him promotion, a stance he took. He had a worker underneath him who had made mistakes. She was bright, she was young and she'd just begun. And she had to front up and give if I can say, an account for the mistakes she'd made. Her boss stood in the gap and defended her to those upstream and said, it's actually my fault. And it may have cost him in terms of potential promotion. There's no doubt he was not looked upon well because he said, actually, no, what happened is my fault. I should have instructed her and worked with her better. The girl was not a Christian and she went and saw a boss and said, why did you do that? I've worked in a number of organisations and I've never seen a boss do that in my life. Well, you know, I see you've got potential and um, I want you to stay around here and um, I thought I should take responsibility for what happened. She said, no, 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 I've never seen anyone do that. that that's not normal. The people I've worked for would very quickly shift the blame and I should be probably exiting the company. Why are you like this? And when pushed, he said, well, I follow someone who stood in the gap for me and who's taken the blame for my failings. You see, I'm a Christian and the message of the gospel is that someone has stood in my place before God and taken my judgment. She said, well, which church do you go to? I'd like to go along. And I thought that was profound. You see, he took his identity to work as a Christian and he lived it out in a way that was not pushy but was profound. And he saw that he was there to serve the city and as a boss he was to serve those under him and protect them. And his faith profoundly shaped him even at the point that it might cost him as a Christian. He did not care. What he wanted to do was honour and make known his saviour and in the most tangible of ways preach the gospel to her through his actions. You see, we are not to separate. We must go into this world but we're not to assimilate and become like the world. We're to have a perspective that God has put us in this world to serve the world and be a living witness. Friends, can I encourage you to pray for Mike Baird? That is exactly what he's trying to do. Uh, We prayed for him last Sunday at 5 o'clock and he said the two things that keep him going are the peace of God in Christ and a perspective that God is in charge. And there is no doubt they will try and bring him down for his faith. And we must support him and pray for him that God will give him strength like he gave to Daniel. Well, that's the first thing, perspective. That's what this passage challenges us on and helps us see we're to have a perspective in how we go out to work every day. We are servants. We are witnesses. And secondly, belief. What gave Daniel that strength? Well, I said there were daily devotions and prayers, but there's something underneath that which is far more profound. It's the God that he prayed to that he knew so well and he had such a deep trust and belief in it and it was that he knew that God is a God who saves. Now, one of the problems with this story is it is so famous and people often say, dare to be a Daniel. Have you ever heard that phrase? Um, Dare to be a Daniel. And what they will say is, uh, and you'll hear this said, and you'll sometimes hear it taught at kid's church, uh, if you really trust God, uh, he will not let anything bad happen to you. See, that's the moral of the story. Put your trust in God and he will protect you and bad things won't happen. And uh, if that's what you tell your kids when you read the story of Daniel, if I can just say you're completely wrong, don't do it. That is not the moral of this story. You see, that is not the Christian faith that if you trust God, he will never let anything bad happen to you. You see, there was another man who also trusted God far more profoundly than Daniel. And he was far more innocent than Daniel. And like Daniel, he was also thrown into a cave. And like Daniel, he had a stone rolled over him by the king of that day. But unlike Daniel, he was covered in wounds, and scratches and he was mauled. You know who I'm talking about, don't you? Uh, It's the Lord Jesus Christ and he's the one we follow. And so if you read the story and think, well, if I trust in God, he'll rescue me and my life will be filled with blessings, I just have to believe it, it'll be true, um, you probably have never understood the gospel. If I can very gently say, you may not even be a Christian. The Christian message is profoundly different. You see, Jesus said, I did not come to rescue good people to help them become better and more comfortable. I came to rescue sick people. I came for sinful, broken people to forgive them and to save them, and to offer them mercy and grace. And this narrative and this story of Daniel in the lion's den points to the God who saves. That's what this story is about. And Tim Keller has uh, been very helpful for me in thinking about this. You see, the miracles of the Bible are to show us salvation, And in two ways, you see the God who saves. The first way is this. Uh, It gives us a picture of the salvation that will come in the future. Uh, When you think of heaven, I don't know what your vision of it is, but you get numerous visions in the Old Testament of what heaven will be like. And it's not just heaven, it's a new creation. It's a new heavens, It's a new earth. And one of them is in Isaiah 11. If you want to have a look, just look it up now. Verse 6, it says, The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And the little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. The young will lie down together and the lion will eat the straw like the ox. And it's a fascinating vision, you see. It's a vision of where the created order and the disorientation, the dangers, the troubles, The fears that we have, being attacked by lions, they're all changed. There is shalom. There is peace. And you will actually walk with lions in the way Daniel walked with the lions in the den that night. And you see, when you see him walking with the lions in the den, it's actually a picture of the new creation, where the things that attack us in this world are so transformed that we are at shalom with each other and we are at shalom with this world. That is the vision of heaven. And the narrative also points to the salvation that's already been accomplished in the past. You see, the angel that rescues Daniel from the lion's den, he didn't take Daniel out of the den, he rescued him in the den. And there's one greater than Daniel that's gone into that den on our behalf. And it's interesting, the image of lions in the Bible is an image of facing God's judgment. In Psalm 22, that Jesus cries out on the cross, it says these words, Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions tearing their prey open, their mouths wide open against me. I am poured out like water and all my bones out of joint. And so when you meet the roaring lions, you're meeting uh, what Scripture is saying, the justice and the judgment of God. And there's no doubt the lions roared. The lions of God roared and destroyed Jesus on the cross and mauled him as he faced hell for us. And because he faced the lions of God, we can be saved. He faced them so that we won't have to. That's what this story is telling us. One greater than Daniel has arrived who has gone into the den. They have mauled him. The stone was rolled over it. But he conquered and he rose and he offers salvation and friendship and grace and forgiveness to all who will turn to him and live. And when you know that belief and that God, you can serve him whatever happens, whatever lines you have to face in this world. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you love us profoundly in the Lord Jesus. Help us have a perspective of life in this world of service and witness the way Daniel did. And help us to know you as the God who has not just saved us, but rescued us and gives us strength to cope through all the trials of life. In Jesus' name, amen.